This is Medieval Death Trip for Tuesday, May 11th, 2021. Episode 87, Medieval True Crime 3, Death in the Countryside. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. This episode, after an unintentionally long, busy pandemic semester hiatus, we're at last resuming our mini-series on medieval true crime with a further exploration of 13th century English coroner's rolls. The coroner's rolls, of course, are focused on unnatural death because that is the prescribed purview of the coroner, and so the crime we most frequently encounter in these records is murder. Other crimes are often incidental or antecedent to the murder, whether it's robbery or assault or even arson, but murder remains the central concern. As I said, there is a functional and legal reason why this is the case for the coroner's roles. But I've been wondering to what degree murder reigned as queen over crime narratives more broadly. Today, this is certainly still the case. A brief survey of true crime content shows that murder is the central preoccupation. You have the occasional kidnapping or spectacular bank robbery or heist, but murder is still clearly the default subject. That said, I will name-check one great podcast, uh, Criminal, hosted by Phoebe Judge, which makes a special effort to explore a much wider range of crimes and criminal activity. But our murder fixation goes beyond true crime. Even in fiction, mystery might as well be synonymous with murder mystery, uh, especially in anything remotely adjacent to detective fiction. Um, Sherlock Holmes has come up a few times on recent episodes of this show, and that's prompted me to listen again to the complete stories uh, as a bedtime audiobook. And there I was struck by how relatively rarely Holmes is called to investigate a murder. A lot of the mysteries are a whole other range of thefts, forgeries, impostures, blackmail, or just figuring out who some mysterious figure is. Compare that to Agatha Christie, where it is definitely the odd case out for Poirot or Miss Marple that a dead body isn't at the center of it. I'm not really well-versed enough in the broader history of crime fiction to know just how much blame to put on Agatha Christie as a trendsetter here, or, or even credit to Arthur Conan Doyle as an outlier, but I do know there was plenty of interest in murder narratives and basically true crime tabloids in Victorian England, which was also an influence on the development of detective fiction. And, of course, we can't ignore the emergence of the popular broadsides and murder ballads of the 18th century. But listening to the Sherlock Holmes stories again, I was left feeling like our modern crime fiction is maybe a bit poorer for this dominance of murder in our plotlines. We get diversity in settings and in the wide range of professions for amateur sleuths, it's almost always the same crime again and again. Why can't a fraud investigation offer as engrossing a narrative? And, of course, the answer is it can and has done so. So really, the question is, why can't we as a collective audience and marketplace get as enthusiastic about such a narrative? Why do we remain so fixated on the siren call of the corpse in a pool of blood on the library parquet? Well, I guess if you look to the biblical tradition, then murder, Cain killing Abel, is the first crime. So I suppose there is ancient precedent for our murder obsession. 
then again, maybe the first crime is lying to the authorities if we go with the Garden of Eden. Or actually, in that case, maybe it's theft right there at the start of things. Uh, anyway, I should confess that I don't really keep up with what's happening in contemporary mystery novels. I'm kind of basing this on the kind of mystery franchises that get adapted for film and television. So if you out there have recommendations for some current detective fiction that actually engages with plots beyond murder, post some titles for me to explore as summer reading. Uh, you can do that on Twitter, where we are at MDT Podcast. As for medieval crime fiction, uh, meaning stories from the Middle Ages, uh, not Cadphile or The Name of the Rose or other period mysteries, I have nothing in the way of statistics uh, and even defining what we would qualify as crime fiction within medieval literature is a tricky matter, but I have a rough anecdotal sense that straight-up murder is central to a lower proportion of medieval crime tales than it is in modern crime fiction. I feel like robbers get a lot more attention in medieval lit. But actually doing the statistical analysis on that is a research project for some other enterprising student or scholar out there. On the subject of defining terms, the meaning of murder itself is rather complicated, partly due to the question of how you even define crime in societies that don't have the same conception of law enforcement and a justice system that we do. There is a conceptual difference between an act that is understood as an offense and injury against an individual and one that is understood to be against the social order, or the state. You go back into Anglo-Saxon England, and justice is much more of a negotiable commodity, where prosecuting a case depends on the strength of supporters you can rally to your side. Most killings could be settled by the paying of Weregild, the man price, a sum of money that represents the value of the person lost. Capital punishment, as a legal measure, outside of the tit-for-tat killings of blood feud, capital punishment was reserved for killings committed by stealth, a violation of the fundamental code of honor of a warrior society. Death in open, straightforward combat, sort of regardless of motive, was really just a matter of accounting to make it right. Or at least, that's how the system is supposed to work in principle— the extensive body of blood feud legends and narratives shows us how often human emotion was not satisfied by this rational system of monetary compensation. The Norman Conquest brought a number of legal changes. Uh, William the Conqueror instituted the fine of murdrum, which was to be paid to the crown by any community in which a Norman was killed and the killer not apprehended. This is obviously the law of a foreign occupier a way of suppressing the hostility of the natives. Though, interestingly, the Murdrum fine stayed on the books until 1340. But whatever its colonialist-slash-imperialist motives, this law is one way of making the crime of murder one against the state rather than against an individual. And Norman law pushes this principle even further, ultimately claiming for the crown the authority to adjudicate all homicides. Weregild is done away with as a remedy, and all homicides must come before the royal justices. From our perspective, that probably sounds like progress, a step towards objective justice and centralized law enforcement and submission to a code of laws rather than being trapped in the flux of an honor economy. And maybe that's true. But another way to see what the Normans and Angevins are doing is to recognize this extension of jurisdictions over all homicides as essentially claiming 
all of their subjects as their property. I'm the king, and if you kill one of my subjects, you owe me. In the 11th century, it was, We Normans stand above and rule you rebellious English peasantry, and you dare not oppose our class, you will pay for killing one of us. 12th to 14th century, it's transitioning into, I, the king, stand over and rule all of you, and you dare not oppose me and my loyal ministers. Of course, you do get Magna Carta there in the middle of that, which is the barons taking some rights and liberties back from the crown, but a lot of that doesn't really filter down to the general populace. But the kind of blunt, punitive philosophy behind the fine of Merdram, uh, it doesn't matter why a Norman was killed or who did it, someone's going to pay. This principle shapes the legal definition of murder through most of the Middle Ages in England. One consequence of this legal distinction between the killing of a Norman, for which the whole community must pay restitution to the king, and the killing of a commoner of English descent, which carried no such penalty, uh, one consequence of this is that the default legal assumption was that any unknown murder victim was presumed to be Norman, thus incurring the murderum fine on the community. In other words, the king is going to get paid unless the community can show that the dead person was of English blood. This was called offering proof of Englishry, and is one of the facts frequently documented in the coroner's rolls, which reinforces the idea I mentioned in our previous installment of this miniseries, that the rolls primarily exist as financial records, rather than what we would think of as documentation of a criminal investigation. The requirement of proving Englishry remained on the law up until it was abolished in 1340, and until then the king still collected the fine on unknown corpses, even though any real distinction between Norman and English blood had broken down long before then. Another feature of Norman law is that, unlike Anglo-Saxon law, it drew no distinction between what we would call premeditated murder and manslaughter. Instead, there were three categories of homicide. First, you had justifiable homicide, which, especially in the earlier period, was pretty much limited to the killing of people in a formal state of outlawry or thieves caught in the act. Your second category were excusable or pardonable killings. These covered killings committed by accident or by the insane, and also killings in self-defense. I think it's interesting to pause there to think about that distinction. Killing in self-defense was not a justifiable killing. It was a pardonable killing. It was still wrong and a violation of the peace, but it could be forgiven and the punishment waived. And on top of that, the requirements for claiming self-defense were very strict. Here's a statement from one of Henry VI's judges writing in 1454, translated from the French. Quote, If a man assaults you in order to beat you, it is not lawful for you to say you want to kill him and to endanger his life and limb. But if the case is such that he has you at such advantage that he intends to kill you as you seek to flee, and he is swifter than you and pursues you so that you are unable to escape, or if you are on the ground under him, or if he chases you to a wall or hedge or dike so that you cannot escape, then it is lawful for you to say that if he won't desist, you want to slay him to save your own life, and thus you may menace him for such special cause. End quote. 
A person arguing self-defense had to prove that it was an act of last resort. So that's the Middle Ages rejecting the premise of the stand-your-ground laws that we seem so intent on passing here in the United States. However, before you start telling everyone about how much more civilized medieval England was than modern America, um, while that was the stated legal standard for self-defense, we have quite a bit of evidence that actual juries acquitted defendants in cases of much more aggressive self-defense than the law was supposed to allow for. So even if the law frowned on resorting to violence, the people were a little more tolerant of it. Um, But we'll actually come back to that in a second. Anyway, we've done justifiable homicides. We've done pardonable homicides. The third category is everything else to be treated as a capital offense. So this is where if you get into a drunken fight outside a pub and knock someone in the head with a staff and five days later they die from complications arising from that wound, you're going to hang just as much as the person who sneaks into someone's house and slits their throat. Death is paid for with death. The distinction we have now between murder and manslaughter did not arrive formally into English law until the late 16th century. That said, as with the case of self-defense, we can see evidence of juries frequently opting to acquit someone whose crime fits what we'd call manslaughter, even if by the strict legal terms of the day, they ought to have been found guilty. Uh, I should also note here that for much of these points, I'm drawing on an article by Thomas A. Green, Societal Concepts of Criminal Liability for Homicide in Medieval England, Uh, and you can get the full reference for that and our other sources on our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. Anyway, this example of a medieval version of a kind of jury nullification highlights one other interesting feature of medieval English law and criminal trials. The majority of defendants were acquitted at trial. A rough estimate from the admittedly spotty trial records that survive is that only 17% of homicide trials resulted in conviction. Uh, That figure comes from Barbara Hanawalt. Now, is this because of brilliant legal arguments getting people off? No. It's because if you knew guilt meant death, then basically if you had any uncertainty about being acquitted then you'd just never submit to a trial. You'd flee the jurisdiction, become a new person in another town or another country, something easier to do in an age before IDs and birth certificates or even enough literacy to have letters of introduction like you get in later periods. And beyond that, if you had the misfortune to be apprehended before you could get away, we have some evidence that local juries knew that these coroner's inquests were subject to corruption. And when you have grudges between neighbors, that easily produces false testimony and false accusations against one's rivals. This probably also explains a number of acquittals we have despite the inquest evidence naming a specific culprit. Anyway, a combination of suspects on the lam and murderers who could never be identified at all produces another statistic. Out of all the homicides recorded in the coroner's rolls, only around 36% of cases ever went to trial. Uh, Again, as best as we can tell from the records we have. If we want to compare that to the present day, uh, an NPR report from 2015 put the national average clearance rate for murder cases, uh, that means cases considered solved or satisfactorily closed by law enforcement, even if they didn't go to trial or didn't result in conviction, 
That percentage is 64.1%, which is pretty good, I'd say. The actual conviction rate for murder in the U.S. is around 70%, quite different from medieval England, and probably reflects how few murder cases make it all the way to trial today without a pretty solid body of evidence. The only evidence medieval juries typically had to consider was eyewitness testimony, public knowledge of motive, uh, recent fights and arguments, and being caught red-handed with the blood-stained murder weapon. Oh, and confessions. Though, at least in my survey of the coroner's roles, I haven't seen very many confessions of guilt recorded. Indeed, the voice of the accused is almost entirely silent. In America, if charged, you're more likely to be convicted of murder than most other felonies. Except, curiously, ones involving cars. Only motor vehicle theft and a category vaguely labeled driving-related offenses at the felony level, have higher conviction rates than murder, by a few percentage points. Actually, maybe that's not that curious. Presumably, many more automotive crimes involve being caught red-handed either in the stolen car or in the vehicle involved in whatever other kinds of car crime, which is pretty compelling evidence. Anyway, that is a point of contrast with medieval English juries who were less likely to convict defendants for murder than they were for burglary or robbery. And all of those were capital offenses, so a reluctance to subject someone to the death penalty can be ruled out as the reason for the difference. Only 17% of murder defendants were convicted, but 37% of robbery defendants were. Still, on the whole, a low percentage, though, especially compared to modern trials, but more than double the murder conviction rate. All right, let's conclude our legal history survey there and move on to our text for today, a selection of murders recorded in the Bedfordshire Coroner's Rolls from 1269 to 1271. These are all translated by Charles Gross uh, in his 1896 book, Select Cases from the Coroner's Rolls, A.D. 1265 to 1413, with a brief account of the history of the Office of Coroner. This is an interesting little collection that can be both frustratingly laconic about these crimes, uh, very Joe Friday, you know, just the facts, ma'am, but then will sometimes slip into these striking little vignettes, just like the cold open of a Law & Order episode, you know, the young cowherd trying to find out why one of his cows won't go further into a wood and stumbling over a body. Dun-dun. Another thing that's fun to listen for in this is the variety of names especially surnames. A lot of the texts we get on this show are rather stingy with names, uh, even treating them as almost an afterthought. But in these lists of witnesses and pledges, we get a great sampler of the names of ordinary folk in the towns and villages of England. We'll start off with a little trio of items we might call death by water, or at least death in water. And for this, the first of our triad is going to pull us out of both Bedfordshire and the mid-13th century, to jump into Essex a hundred years later uh, to the Ville of Little Cogs Hall in 1371, uh, just so we can explore this one modus operandi. But then we'll be back in 13th century Bedfordshire for the rest.
It happened that Agnes, wife of John Driver of Little Baddow, was found dead there at Little Cogs Hall on Thursday of Easter week in the 45th year of King Edward III, April 10th, 1371. John Growl, who first found her dead body, notified the four nearest neighbors, to wit, Edmund Fuller, Walter True, John Steer, and Richard Hayward, and they notified Thomas Peacock, the king's bailiff of that hundred, who notified John of Guestingthorpe, one of the coroners of the county, and he came to Cogs Hall on the following Friday of that week to view the body of Agnes. And John Growl, the finder, showed the body to the coroner, and the latter viewed it and felt it, and made inquest concerning her death on the oath of Thomas Lavender, John Mile, Roger Fuller, Adam Sprott, John Clerk, John Fabian, John Westwood, John Strogel, John Wheeler, Henry Stork, Richard Draper, and John Russell. And they say on their oath that on Palm Sunday of the aforesaid year, John Driver, son of Emma of Bado, and husband of the said Agnes, took his wife Agnes with him to a certain well filled with water in the field of Cogshall called Westfield, and there he beat her on the head and neck and so ill-treated her that he almost killed her. Then, believing her to be dead, he threw her into the well, so that her whole body was underwater except her neck and head. And Agnes thus lay in the water until Good Friday, when John Growl found her lying in the aforesaid position and still alive. He notified the neighbors, and they took her from the well and carried her to the house of Marjorie Rush in the aforesaid ville, where she lay alive and lingered until the following Thursday in Easter week, and then she died of the said injuries. Thus, John Driver feloniously killed the aforesaid Agnes. It happened in the Liberty of Eton on Sunday next before Port Latin Day in the 53rd year, May 5th, 1269, that Richard, son of Robert of Staplehoe, came to Wilden at night to the house of his wife Yvette and induced her to go with him to her father's house in Staplehoe. On the way to that place, he killed her and threw her body into a well called Whitewall. Robert of Lee found her next morning and raised the hue. He produced two pledges. Inquest was made before Simon Reed, the coroner, by four neighboring townships, Eaton, Colmworth, Wilden, Y. Boston, and Staplehoe. They say, as is aforesaid. They also say that Richard has no chattels. It is ordered that Richard be arrested. Englishry was presented by Walter Baker of Abbotsley, her father, and Hugh, Christian's son, her uncle on the mother's side. It happened in the ville of Ravensden on the night of Sunday next before Easter Day in the 55th year, March 29, 1271, that Walter Bedell of Reynold came to the house of his wife, Isabel, Reginald's daughter, in Ravensden, and asked her to come with him to the Grange of Reynold to get a bushel of wheat which he wished to give to her, and she went with him. And when they reached the meadow called Longmead, he at once struck her over the left ear, evidently with a knife, giving her a wound three inches in length and to the brain in depth. Afterwards, he threw her into the water of a brook called Ravensbrook. And on the following Monday, Matilda, her mother, Reginald's wife, first found her dead. She raised the hue, and the hue was pursued. And she produced pledges, Roger Newbond and Walter Alfred of Ravensden. Richard Smith, the first neighbor, produced pledges. 
Walter Alfred, and Hugh White. William N. Gain, the second neighbor, produced pledges, John Savage, and Richard Smith. Inquest was made before Ralph of Goldington, the coroner, by four neighboring townships, Goldington, Rinhold and Ravensden as one township, Bolnhurst, and Wilden. They say, as is aforesaid, and they know nothing else. They were asked about his chattels, and they say that he had a lamb at Wilden, which is appraised at twelve pence. It is delivered to the township of Wilden. It happened in the ville of Roxton on the night of Sunday, the feast of St. Hugh the Bishop in the 54th year, November 17, 1269, that felons broke into a house and carried away everything of value. They then robbed another house, killing the two inmates. Next, they robbed the house of John Cobbler. They killed him and wounded his wife, Azeline, his daughter, Agnes, and his servant, Walter. His daughter, Alice, escaped and hid herself. She first found John's body, raised the hue, and produced two pledges. The finder of the two dead bodies in the other house raised the hue and produced two pledges. The first, second, third, and fourth neighbor each found two pledges. Inquest was made before Ralph of Goldington by four neighboring townships, Roxton, Barford, Chawston, Coldston, Boston. they say as is aforesaid. Azeline, wife of the said John Cobbler, before she died, stated before the coroner that she saw and recognized certain of those who participated in the felony. She said that a certain person named Richard of Neville, who formerly followed the prior of Newham, was there. Azeline also stated that certain persons were there who, during the last autumn, collected the tithes of the prior of Caldwell in the parish of Roxton, and that glovers of Bedford were present. Afterwards, their names were secured by the coroner. They were Richard of Polebrook and Adam, Allen, and Simon Corbin, and they were arrested at the liberty of the town of Bedford. And the said Richard was arrested on the indictment of the said Azeline, who was taken to the jail to identify him. And again, she stated that Richard participated in the said felony. Afterwards, he was delivered before the king's justices assigned for jail delivery by the king's writ, to wit, Nicholas Paver and others. Walter of St. Neats found pledges, Walter Rundell, and Walter Carpenter of Chawston. It happened in the Ville of Ravenden at twilight on Thursday next before the feast of St. Mark the Evangelist in the 55th year of King Henry, April 23, 1271, that felons and thieves came to the house of John Reed, while the said John and Matilda, his wife, and Walter and Richard, his servants, were seated at supper. They, the felons, entered by the door on the west side and at once assaulted John, striking him on the head near the crown, evidently with an axe, and wounding him in the heart with a knife so that he died immediately. They also wounded the said Matilda on the right side of the head and almost cut off her left hand, and, heating a brandreth, or iron tripod, they placed her upon it, and they left her almost dead. They also bound Walter of Eastwood and Richard Pycorn, servants of the household. Afterwards, they robbed the house of all its goods and carried them away. Walter of Eastwood unbound himself, and seeing the said John dead, he raised the hue. 
The neighbors came, and the hue was pursued. Walter found pledges, William Smith of Salinhoe, and Walter Galleon of the same place. Matilda, wife of the said John, found pledges to come to the county court, to wit, Walter Goosefoot and William Brunt. Inquest was made before Ralph of Goldington by four neighboring townships, Rinhold and Ravenston as one township, Wilden, Barford, and Goldington. They say that they suspect John, who was formerly the miller of Simon Ruse, and that John Reed was killed by the counsel of Agnes Pycorn and Matilda Pycorn, and Matilda, wife of John Reed, says the same. It was ordered that they be arrested. Richard Pycorn could not find pledges. Therefore, since he was suspected, he was sent to the jail in the time of T. of Bray, the then sheriff. It happened in the Ville of Roxton, early in the morning on Sunday next before the Feast of St. Margaret, July 19, 1271, that Ralph, son of William Shepherd of Roxton, was going along the western part of the wood of Sir Humphrey of Barford, having charge of certain cows and heifers. One heifer would not go into the wood, and Ralph entered a ditch of the wood to turn the heifer back to its mates, and in that ditch he found the dead body of a certain man, a stranger, who had a wound four inches long on the head above the left ear, and the brains had exuded from it. Ralph raised the hue, and the hue was pursued. He produced pledges, Roger Beer of Roxton and William of Barford. Inquest was made before Ralph of Goldington, the coroner, by four neighboring townships, Roxton, Barford, Wilden, and Coldston and Chawston as one township. They say on their oath that they know nothing about the slain man, nor do they know when or where he was killed, nor whence he came, but they well know that he was not killed there, nor can they find or obtain knowledge of any tracks made by him in coming there. About noon, on Monday next before the Feast of the Apostles Simon and Jude in the 55th year of King Henry, son of King John, October 26, 1271, it happened at Y. Boston, in the parish of Eton, in the King's Highway between the yard of Osbert of Bath and the croft of John Rungifer, that Osbert of Bath distrained Richard of Colston, a man of Adam of Bassamy, by seizing a cow. And the said Adam ordered Walter of Hockwold and William Cook, his men, together with John Thane, bailiff of the Lord King, to deliver the said distress. They came to the said place and met Thomas Snow of the county of Somerset, a servant and retainer of the said Osbert of Bath, while Osbert was at the plough in the fields of Wyboston. And the said Walter asked the said Thomas with whom the cow was, and struck him a little blow with a stick upon the left shoulder. Then came Osbert of Bath, Nicholas of Bath, and Walter Smod of the county of Somerset, and strife arose among them. Walter Smod struck Walter of Hockwold across the top of the head with an axe called a sparth, and inflicted upon him a wound six inches long, which extended through the skull to the brain, so that the blood and brains flowed forth. Walter died of the wound on Friday next before the Feast of All Saints, in the 56th year of King Henry, October 30th, 1271. Inquest was made before Ralph of Goldington, the coroner, by four neighboring townships, 
Eaton, Sudbury, Colmworth, Staplehoe, and Wyboston. They say on their oath that Walter Smod of the county of Somerset killed Walter of Hockwold, as is aforesaid. Therefore, it is ordered that he be arrested, and that Osbert of Bath, Nicholas of Bath, Thomas Snow, and Walter Fig be attached. And afterwards, in the full county court, the township of Eton presented that Walter of Hockwold pursued Osbert of Bath to his door in Wyboston, and that Walter Smod, in self-defense and in defending Osbert of Bath, killed Walter of Hockwold, as is aforesaid, and that no one except Walter Smod was to blame for Walter of Hockwold's death. Aubrey of Hockwold came to the county court of Bedford on Monday next after the Feast of All Saints in the 56th year of King Henry, son of King John, November 2nd, 1271, and appealed Walter Smod of the county of Somerset for that while she and Walter of Hockwold, her son, were in the peace of God and of the Lord King Henry, son of King John, between the ninth and the eleventh hour on Monday next before the Feast of the Apostles, Simon and Jude in the 55th year of King Henry, in the King's Highway, to wit, between the capital Messwidge, or dwelling house, of Osbert of Bath in the Ville of Wyboston, and the Croft of John Rungifer in the same Ville, there came Walter Smod and assaulted Walter of Hockwold, her son, wickedly, feloniously, and with threatening aspect and premeditated assault, and against the King's peace as a felon. And with an axe called a sparth, the handle of which was of hazel and the blade of iron and steel, he struck Walter, her son, on the right side of the head between the right ear and the parting of the hair, inflicting upon him a wound six inches long and three inches wide, extending in depth through the skull, so that the blood and brains flowed forth, so that of the blow thus wickedly dealt him, he died. And Aubrey promptly raised the hue and pursued it from ville to ville and to the king's bailiffs, and thus to the coroner, and thus to the next county court." And that Walter Smod committed this felony against Walter of Hockwold wickedly, feloniously, with premeditated assault, and against the king's peace as a felon in the said year, place, and hour, with the said axe, she offers to prove and to reign against him as against a felon, insofar as the court of the Lord King shall award that a woman can or ought to sue or bring proof against a man. And she finds pledges to prosecute Richard of Colston and John Marriott of Wyboston. Also, Aubrey appeals Osbert of Bath for that the said Osbert, who was present in the said year, place, and hour, ordered Walter, the felon, to commit the felony, and as a felon he caused him to do it, and he harbored the said felon after and before the felony was committed. And also, for that Osbert, with his right hand, hit Walter, her son, under the ear on the left side of the head, with a stone called a flint, wickedly, feloniously, with premeditated assault, and against the king's peace as a felon, so that if he had not died of the aforesaid wound, he would have died of this blow. And Aubrey offers to prove or derain this as against a felon, according as the court of the Lord King shall award. Pledges to prosecute as above. Also, Aubrey appeals Nicholas of Bath, brother of Osbert of Bath, of being an accessory, for that in the said year, place, and hour, he held the right arm of her son with both hands while he was being killed, and for that her son would not have been killed if Nicholas had not held him, and that he did this wickedly, feloniously, and with premeditated assault as a felon she offers to prove against him, etc. Also, Aubrey appeals Thomas Snow of the county of Somerset, for that in the said year, place, and hour 
He struck Walter, her son, with a hazel stick on the left arm between the hand and the elbow, and he did this wickedly and feloniously and with premeditated assault as a felon, and this she offers to prove against him, etc. Also, Aubrey appeals John of Hardwick for that in the said year, place, and hour, he struck Walter, her son, over the loins with an ash stick which he held with both his hands, and he did this wickedly and feloniously and with premeditated assault as a felon and this she offers to prove as above. Also, Aubrey appeals Henry Fig of Y. Boston for that in the said year, place, and hour, he held the said Walter by the neck with both hands while he was being killed, and he did this wickedly and feloniously as a felon and against the king's peace, and this she offers to prove as above. Also, Aubrey appeals Morris Fig in the same way, for that the said Morris held him by the left leg, also, Aubrey appeals William, son of William Fig of Y. Boston, for that in the aforesaid way, in the said year, place, and hour, he held Walter by the right leg, and he did this as a felon, wickedly, and against the king's peace. And this she offers to prove as above. And Aubrey offers to prove and derain all this against them as against felons, insofar as the court of the Lord King shall award that a woman can or ought to prove or sue against men. And if she should fail to make suit on account of death or illness, her daughter Matilda offered in the aforesaid way to sue or bring proof against the aforesaid persons by pledges as above. Also at the County Court of Bedford, on Monday the Feast of St. Andrew, Aubrey comes and prosecutes her appeal against Walter Smod and the other seven appellees. They were exacted for the first time, but did not come. Therefore, by the judgment of the county, a day was given to Aubrey at the next county court. Also at the county court of Bedford on Monday next before Christmas, Aubrey comes and prosecutes her appeal against Walter Smod and the other seven appellees. They were exacted a second time, but did not come. Therefore, a day at the next county court, namely five weeks hence, was given to Aubrey. Also at the County Court of Bedford on Monday, the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul in the 56th year, Aubrey of Hockwold came to the full County Court and prosecuted her appeal against Walter Smod and the other seven. They were exacted a third time for the death of Walter of Hockwold, but did not come. Therefore, a day at the next County Court was given to Aubrey. Also at the County Court of Bedford on Monday, the Feast of St. Peter's Chair in the 56th year, Aubrey of Hockwold came and prosecuted her appeal against Walter Smod of the County of Somerset. He was exacted the fourth time, but he did not come, nor did anyone go surety for his appearance at the next session of the court. Therefore, he was outlawed by the judgment of the county court. Also, Aubrey prosecuted her appeal against the other seven appellees, and she was adjourned before the justices of the bench to prosecute the aforesaid persons if she wishes. This was done by the king's order in these words. Henry, by the grace of God, etc., to the sheriff of Bedford, greeting. We command that you cause the appeal brought by Aubrey of Hockwold in your county court against the seven appellees for the death of Walter of Hockwold, son of the said Aubrey, to come before our justices at Westminster in Easter Quindine with the attachments and all other things touching that appeal and inform the said Aubrey that then and there she is to prosecute her appeal, if she wishes, against the said Osbert, Nicholas, Thomas, John, Henry, Morris, and William, and have this writ there. Witness myself at the Tower of London on the fifth day of February in the fifty-sixth year of our reign. 
For Ralph of Goldington, the coroner is Aubrey's kinsman, and it is said that he favors her in this plea. So, we conclude our survey of homicide in Bedfordshire with another long-protracted legal case, an example both of the reality of no-show defendants and this specter of corruption in the coroner's evidence. It's also fairly representative of the motives we see for murder. A fight over ownership of a cow ends in death. Thieves torture their victims to give up the hiding places of their valuables and then murder them to leave no witnesses and husbands murder their wives. Why do husbands murder their wives? Probably for the same reasons that underlie domestic violence today. Uh, The coroners don't elaborate on motive. Though there is something peculiar in both of the two Bedfordshire accounts, which I'm not sure what to make of. In each, we're told that the husband went to, quote, the house of his wife, end quote, and enticed her to come out with him. And in one case, it's specified that the house of the wife is in a different town than where the husband is said to reside. That certainly suggests estrangement to some degree. Now, I don't know if this house of the wife is just some term of art that I'm not understanding. Uh, I think it's certainly plausible that it means the house of the wife's family, so the husband's in-law's house, rather than a house the wife resides in alone and separate from the husband, uh, though that's only my guess. Uh, It's also possible in the in-law's house reading that the wife is merely visiting there on an afternoon rather than living there full-time. If any of you listeners have any expertise in reading these kinds of records or in medieval English domestic arrangements, uh, I'd love to hear what you make of this detail. All right, then, let's move on to our final segment. The first letter of our mystery word today, as we continue beyond the boundaries of the modern English alphabet, is thorn the runic character adapted into Old English orthography to represent the sound we now mark with TH, or in linguistic terms, the dental fricative. They needed a letter for this sound because it didn't exist in Latin. In fact, it's quite a rare sound, only occurring in about 4% of languages. It's not a native sound in most of the other major modern European languages, and it's even less common in the languages of East Asia, which is why it's one of the sounds that's frequently difficult for learners of English to master. Uh, A substitution for that sound is kind of a hallmark of a foreign accent to English-speaking ears. Though, that said, there are also plenty of native English dialects and accents that also substitute in another sound for the dental fricative. Uh, Anyway, English scribes used two characters to reflect this sound. One was thorn, which looks kind of like either a P with the line continuing up past the loop, or a P with the loop shifted down to the middle of its line rather than the top. The other character was eth, a modified Latin D with a cross line drawn through the middle of the upright bar on the capital D, or across the stem of the lowercase d, a curved stem in medieval script, a feature maintained in modern typographic forms of eth. The two letters presumably represented the two forms of the dental fricative, voiced and unvoiced. Uh, Voiced means your vocal cords are vibrating as you make the sound. So the voiced uh, TH is the sound we have in that, 
and unvoiced is what we have in thin. So you have the vibration in that versus thin, which is just air. We make this distinction with other letters. Uh, F and V are the unvoiced and voiced labiodental fricatives, as in life versus live. And this distinction is still maintained between Thorn and Eth in modern Icelandic, the only modern language that still has both of those characters in its standard alphabet. Uh, Eth also survives in modern Faroese from the Faroe Islands, but its use there is peculiar and I don't really understand it. Uh, It seems like some kind of strange vestigial survival. But even in our early texts, uh, English scribes appear to be fairly loosey-goosey with distinguishing Eth and Thorn, and in later texts, they are almost entirely interchangeable, uh, outside of some preferential usages like using Thorn at the start of words. And it's partly for that reason that I don't have a mystery word that starts with Eth to include. You don't find it very often as an initial letter, and almost never in actual standardized dictionaries of either Old English or Old Norse, and in modern Icelandic, it just doesn't occur at the start of a word. Even in modern English, we don't have that many words that begin with a voiced dental fricative, though the ones that we do have are real workhorses, like that, and they, and them, and there, and though, and thus, and of course, the. But try to continue that list, and you won't find much more besides, you know, compounds of those words like therefore and themselves. By the Middle English period, eth had been virtually eliminated from the English writing system, and th had emerged to challenge Thorn, a conquest ultimately completed with the rise of the printing press and the pressure to simplify and conform to the standard Latin alphabet and the existing lead typesets of continental Europe. Speaking of pressure, that does bring us to our mystery word. The word is threatened. Thorn, R-E-A-T-E-N-D. Threatened. If you just take it phonetically, it actually is very close to what it sounds like. The first element is threat, which, if you just change the thorn to a T-H, uh, you've got its modern form, threat. And it does have the sense, uh, per the Bosworth Taller Dictionary, of violence, compulsion, force, oppression. But it was also used to mean a troop, band, crowd, swarm, press, throng. And both meanings point to an underlying idea of pressure or oppression. That said, in Old English, you don't yet see threat being used as we often use threat, uh, as a speech act, as a type of statement. In Old English, you can threaten in a verb form using words, but we didn't yet have a noun for those words themselves. That comes in during the Middle English period, uh, albeit quite early in that period. There's a recognizable example of it in the poem The Owl and the Nightingale from the mid-13th century, uh, which is one of our rare transitional texts that has one foot in Old English and one in Middle English. Anyway, that covers the threat part. The second element is a suffix, end. In Old English, this suffix is used to indicate that the noun is an agent. It was basically replaced in English by the ER ending, as in worker, writer, podcaster. So, threatend is threat-er, or I suppose we would say threatener. But again, without quite the focus on threat as words, and more on it as a sheer physical menace. 
So Bosworth Toller gives its definition as a violent person, one using violence or compulsion. The end ending is important in a few other notable Old English words, like halland, meaning healer or savior, an epithet for Christ, or weend, meaning warrior, from we, uh, battle, plus end, so literally battler. And then we have also a word that continues into modern English, freyand, or friend. The original root is the verb freyan, or actually freyogan in its more common form, meaning to love. So freyan comes from the stem freyo plus the end suffix, and so it means one who loves, or a lover, but in a sense broader than romantic love, but not exclusive of it. In Middle English, if you call someone your friend, you could be referring to either a dear comrade or someone you're in a romantic relationship with. This seems to carry over into early modern English and Shakespeare, though even by then I think the romantic use of friend is beginning to feel a bit euphemistic. And then, interestingly, the non-romantic usage is pretty much all you have until the end of the 19th century when girlfriend previously used, as it still is, to mean a woman's other female friends, uh, girlfriend acquired a new sense as a female romantic partner. A couple of decades later, boyfriend undergoes the same transition, uh, though its platonic sense did not survive that transition, which almost certainly testifies to the influence of homophobia on the culture and language. Uh, You also had lady friend and gentleman friend following the same pattern, uh, though with less popular usage probably mainly just due to the clunky extra syllables, I'm guessing, Uh, which is also why I expect lady friend remains something you're slightly more likely to hear someone say today than gentleman friend. Though, I don't know why we can't have gent friend, same syllables as boyfriend, and avoids the juvenile connotations. Who's for it? Gent friend? Gent friend... I don't know, is that run of NTFR consonants just a bit too much? Maybe so, though girlfriend has a similar string of consonants all in a row, R-L-F-R. Well, anyway, gent friend. Hashtag it up, people. I wish I'd been able to finish this episode for nearer to Valentine's Day, as, believe it or not, was my original timeline. Uh, We missed a prime marketing opportunity for getting gent friend out there. Anyway... To add one more point to our etymology lesson, uh, freogan also means to make free, to release from bondage. So freogan does give us our verb free. Uh, Looking back into earlier Germanic languages, it appears that the love meaning comes first, and this association with liberation derives from this concept of love. That sounds very poetic and powerful, and maybe it is, though if you look closely at the associations... It looks like loved ones are family members, and family members, as free people, are distinguished from one's thralls and slaves. So the underlying idea is less that setting people free is the ultimate act of love, and more that love is something you would never feel for those you hold in bondage. Not quite as attractive of an etymological example. By Middle English, we'd already lost the sense of to love in the descendants of Freogon, except for friend. 
Instead, we wind up with a compound like free love, which to an old English speaker would have seemed like a redundancy, like bad evil or far distant. Wait, we do say far distant. Uh, I guess English does like some of its little repetitive redundancies where you say the same thing over and over twice and again. Uh, just like we touched on with Hue and Cry and Null and Void in our previous installment of this miniseries. At long last, though, that brings us to the end of this episode. I have an octet of new Patreon supporters to recognize, so thank you, Joe, Olaf, Justin, Ben, Maria, Kathleen, Antonios, and Brianna for helping support the show, especially during what has turned out to be uh, a bit of a drought of episodes. Um, this summer looks like a promising time ahead to make up for the downtime uh, of this winter and spring, and hopefully it will be a little less unsettled than last summer was, when exploring medieval primary texts seemed perhaps rather trivial in comparison to the bigger issues on the table. Uh, of course, many of those issues are still on our public table, but maybe we're at a place where putting out a show like this won't seem like quite as much a display of obliviousness as it did then. Anyway, uh, the point is, I'm shooting for a fairly regular summer season. That's the goal, and I thank you all for bearing with us. If you'd like to get more information about this or any episode of the show, you can find that at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. You can also email me there at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. And you can follow us on Twitter, which I hope to be a little less of a ghost on as we move into the warmer, healthier months. You can find us there at MDT Podcast. And of course, you too can support the show through Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. Um, and I'm looking into set up the option to make that just one annual payment for those who prefer that. Uh, though I'd kind of like to get my episode production back into a more regular rhythm to justify that sort of thing. Uh, but anyway, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash mdtpodcast or just searching for Medieval Death Trip at Patreon. And that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, Patreon. I hope the turn of the season treats you all well. May all your cattle disputes remain peaceful. And thanks for listening.